Good morning, everyone. I won't be needing this. The uh, mic, is it on? Uh, the, the ear mic is back. I broke the last one. Uh, it was old, but uh, we got a new one, so here it is. We uh, tried it out yesterday at the men's conference, and it seemed to work, seemed to work quite well. Uh, speaking of the men's conference, is Brian in here? Maybe he's not. Oh, he is. I want to thank Brian publicly for, uh, for his work on that and putting it together for us. Uh, and those men who helped out with the breakfast, you outdid yourselves. And those men who put together those study guides and those men who cleaned up afterwards, many, many, many thanks for pulling that off and uh, contributing and making it a, a wonderful, beneficial, profitable, edifying morning. We certainly did have a good time here. Uh, Turn with me now in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. That is the book of Mark chapter 14. Uh, Friday was a special day on my calendar, March 1st. Don't even bother trying to guess why, you won't be able to. Uh, It marked the 32nd anniversary of the death, the passing of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. How many of you have ever heard that name? Martin Lloyd-Jones, a good number. We have some of his books out there in the Resource Center. Uh, Lloyd-Jones was a Welshman, uh, a preacher, author, ministered most of his life in the city of of London at Westminster Chapel, and a man who stands out in the 1900s, not because of anything particular or peculiar to him, but because he was a chosen vehicle, a chosen instrument in the hands of Almighty God. And God, through Lloyd-Jones, awakened, I think that's a good way to express it, awakened a number of individuals, a number of churches, large segments of the church, both in Europe and here in North America, to what can only be termed a, a more robust, let's say, sound, biblical uh, theology, and we're certainly indebted to what God accomplished uh, through that man of God. And so I thought it would be appropriate to begin with a a little quotation from the good doctor this morning. This isn't random. It does lead into Mark chapter 14. There is a definite connection between the two, and that will become self-evident in just a moment. But Lloyd-Jones writes in one of his books, in the days of the covenanters in Scotland, now you need a little history lesson, don't you? We're going back 350 years, and the Covenanters referred to a movement in Scotland uh, which resisted the King of England's interference in the church, in its theology, and in its practice, and as a result, they were sorely, severely persecuted. And so in the days of the Covenanters in Scotland, a young girl was walking to a communion service on a Sunday afternoon, so she's on her way to the Lord's Supper. The law strictly prohibited such gatherings. On her way, she came face to face with the king's soldiers. They asked her where she was going. For a brief moment, she hesitated, and then she proceeded. She didn't want to lie, nor did she want to risk arrest. She explained, my elder brother has died, and they are going to read his will this afternoon. And he has done something wonderful for me. And he has left something for me. And I want to hear them read the will. Without another word, they allowed her to proceed. Why? 
They didn't have a clue what she was saying. And yet this little girl uh, uttered, explained, in, in subtle, yet profound terms, the significance of communion, uh, the significance of the Lord's Supper. My elder brother has died. That is the Lord Jesus, who becomes one with us in our humanity by virtue of the incarnation. He is our Redeemer. He is our family member. He is our elder brother. He has died. They're going to read this afternoon his last will and testament. That's the supper. And as they read his last will and testament, I'm going to hear two beautiful truths. One, he has done something for me. And he has done something to me. And that's why we're gathered here this day. We're gathered here because our elder brother has died. We are gathered here because we're going to hear the reading of his last will and testament. We are gathered here because we are celebrating these two great truths. He has done something for us, and he has done something to us. Here at Grace Community Church, it's our custom. If you've been here any length of time, you know this. It's our custom, our tradition, our practice uh, to celebrate the Lord's Supper first Sunday of the month. There's no hard rule to that. I think there's some latitude as to the frequency with which we celebrate the Supper Uh, We know we're to celebrate it. We know it's to be central in the life of the church. Uh, We've chosen to celebrate it on the first Sunday. This being the first Sunday of March, you've guessed it. We are here to participate in communion. We are here to participate and partake of the Lord's Supper. It meshes nicely with the text we've arrived at today in Mark chapter 14, in which the Lord Jesus actually institutes this supper. And so if you found that chapter in God's Word, again, that's book of Mark, chapter 14. If you're here, and I see a few visitors, if you're not familiar, if you don't have a Bible, look around. There are Bibles under the chairs. If you're not familiar with Scripture, book of Mark, chapter 14, those are the big numbers. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. That's the small numbers. And we read the following. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, His disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. 
Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now right back to the start. Verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. What is unleavened bread? And what is the Passover lamb? We must, for a few moments anyway, I'll keep this brief, we must uh, step back in time. As a matter of fact, we're going to go back 4,000 years, over 4,000 years. It is the year 2100 B.C. And God calls a man named Abram. He will change his name to Abraham. He calls Abram out of the land of Ur, present-day Iraq. And he sends him into what we call today the land of Israel. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Tremendous promise. God preserves the promise through one of Abraham's sons, Isaac. He then preserves the promise through one of Isaac's sons, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And Jacob with his sons, they follow one of his sons, Joseph, into the land of Egypt. And there they remain for four centuries. And while there, they grow from a family into a clan, into a nation. And over the course of time, Pharaoh, that is the king of Egypt, he looks with some suspect suspicion upon the Israelites. And so he decides he must control them. How? By enslaving them. And there the children of Israel, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, languish in that state of slavery and physical bondage. Until when? God sends a man named Moses. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, leads Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. That event, that departure from the land of Egypt is known as the Exodus. The important thing for us to notice, the important thing for us to remember is that Pharaoh did not willingly permit Israel to leave. He needed a little convincing. Uh, God needed to twist his arm, literally, and he sent ten plagues. The tenth plague was what? The death of the firstborn. And so God warned Pharaoh, he warned Moses, he warned Israel, he declared that on a certain appointed night, he was going to pass through the land of Egypt, and he himself was going to kill the firstborn in every household throughout the land of Egypt. If the Israelites were to be preserved, if the Israelites were to save their firstborn, they had to do something. They had to find a lamb, either of the sheep or the goats. It had to be a male. And it had to be spotless, unblemished, perfect. They had to take that lamb and they had to kill it. They had to slaughter it. And then they had to roast that lamb with fire. And then they had to eat it, consuming it, leaving nothing until morning. And they had to take the blood which was shed, the blood from that dead lamb, and go outside of their house and sprinkle it on the lentil and the doorpost. 
so that when God passed through the land of Egypt on that appointed night, he would pass over every house, every home, every household upon which the blood of that lamb was sprinkled. God instituted a feast at that time, a memorial, and that is the feast of Passover, accompanied by the feast of unleavened bread. Because at the time of the Exodus, the celebration of the Passover, the Israelites, they had to bake bread in preparation for their journey. They were about to leave uh, Egypt in, in a hurry. They did not have time for the dough to rise. And so they had to take unleavened bread and prepare unleavened bread so that they were ready to go. And so this feast of unleavened bread was instituted, the seven-day festival in which they had to cleanse their homes of all leaven to remember that event, their departure from the land of Egypt. And so God instituted these annual feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover. The year is somewhere around 1400 B.C. And so for the next 1400 years, the nation of Israel annually celebrated Passover and Unleavened Bread. Now, here's an interesting question, a very profitable question. As they celebrated, I mean, th- th- this, these feasts stood at the center of their religion and their annual remembrance and celebration. As they celebrated these two feasts, unleavened bread and Passover, what should they have focused on? What should they have learned? What should have stood out in their mind? First of all, the unleavened bread, that is removing leaven from their homes when they celebrated this feast of unleavened bread, it should have reminded them in their minds to go back to Egypt and to remember that leaven is a symbol of sin. And so they were ridding their homes of leaven, that is ridding themselves of sin, and it was because of their sin that they are in bondage, a far greater bondage and slavery than their ancestors ever experienced back in the land of Egypt. They were actually in bondage, enslaved to their sin. And then when they took that lamb and they killed it, they should have remembered what? They should have celebrated what? They should have learned what? That the wages of sin is death, judgment. And then as they burnt, as they roasted that lamb and they ate it and consumed it, their minds should have been gripped with what? That salvation is through, what? Our identification with a substitutionary sacrifice. And then as they repeated these feasts, year after year after year after year, 1,400 years, what should they have learned? They were actually useless. It's pointless. It doesn't accomplish anything. This doesn't rid us of anything. This doesn't save us from anything. The perpetual celebration, the annual celebration of those feasts should have impressed upon them the fact that the feasts in and of themselves were useless, ineffectual for dealing with their sin. That the death of that lamb actually accomplished nothing. That these feasts were actually in preparation for a far greater event. The removal of the leaven the slaughtering of the lamb, the spilling of its blood, the roasting of its flesh, the eating of the lamb, 
that all of this pointed to something of far greater significance. The feasts were designed to instill within the nation of Israel a heightened sense of expectation. God made a promise to our forefather Abraham, in your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He was building on the covenant he had made back in Genesis chapter 3 to the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the heel. You shall crush his head. It is the first promise of a Savior. And the Passover is designed to create this sense of expectancy within the nation of Israel so that when John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is baptizing in the Jordan River and he sees the Lord Jesus coming, he cries, Behold, the Lamb of God. They should have understood. They should have leapt for joy. They should have been overwhelmed. Here is the fulfillment Here of of every desire, here is the culmination of every promise, here is the very realization of the plan of God, the Lamb of God, who is slain, not only for the Jews, he takes away the sins of the world. Remember the promise to Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now return to our text, verse 12. That's what's going on. Jesus and his disciples... They are celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. The text naturally divides into two sections. It's very simple. We have the preparation, firstly, the preparation of the Passover, verses 12 through 16. And so again in the 12th verse, on the first day of unleavened bread, it's a feast that lasts seven days. It's now Thursday. Remember, in our study, we are considering what's called Passion Week, the last week in the life of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Mark begins his account of Passion Week in chapter 11, verse 1, and it will conclude in chapter 16, verse 9. We've already considered what Mark has to say about the events that happen on Sunday, on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday. Here, with this verse, we arrive at Thursday. It is the first day of unleavened bread. It is the day in which they prepare to partake of the Passover meal later that evening. Now, this is worth noting because sometimes we we get confused here. When it comes to our days and numbering our days and distinguishing one day from the next, you know, this is Sunday. Well, Monday begins when? At 12 o'clock, one second is Monday, right? Not so in Jewish calendar. Not so in the Jewish way of counting time. The day doesn't begin at midnight. For the Jews, the day begins at sundown. So Monday, if we were Jews, wait, 2,000 years ago, Monday would actually begin around 6, 6.30 tonight. That would be Monday. And so it is the day of unleavened bread, the first day of unleavened bread, the Thursday, the day on which they sacrifice the Passover lamb in order to celebrate the Passover later that evening, which is actually then Friday. And everything we read concerning the Passover and subsequently all the way to the end of chapter 15 takes place on the Friday. And so it's Thursday. They're preparing for the Passover. The disciples come to the Lord Jesus at the end of verse 12 with a, with a pretty good question. Where will you have us go? 
and prepare for you to eat the Passover. We should go. We should sacrifice a lamb. We're going to need a room because we know the law. We need to celebrate the Passover and eat this feast, eat this, this, this meal together within the city walls. You can't participate in the feast outside of Jerusalem. They must be in Jerusalem. So where would you have us go to prepare to eat the Passover? And so Jesus responds in verse 13. He sent two of his disciples. He said to them before they went, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. And so Jesus has already prepared the place. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? They go, and this man will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. That's Thursday, the preparation of the Passover. Second half of the text, beginning in verse 17, going through as far as we read, verse 25, the second section, the actual celebration of the Passover. Look at verse 17. And when it was evening, so it is no longer Thursday, it is now Friday. He came with the twelve. That is, they came to the place where they had prepared the Passover. Now, I want you to notice two things. The first is in verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said. Now go over to verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said. And so Mark twice tells us, emphasizes the fact that they're reclining at table. That's the way, the mode in which they ate back in those days. They are partaking of the Passover supper. The lamb has been killed. There it is. It has been prepared. And they're all reclining around this table, and they're partaking of this meal together. Of all the things Mark could focus on, he only mentions two. Two things, two utterances from the lips of the Lord Jesus. As they were reclining, as they were eating, He said, verse 17, as they were reclining, as they were eating, he said, verse 22. Why does he focus on these utterances, these proclamations? It is because these proclamations are downright shocking. Mark focuses on the shocking. And so look at the first, as they were eating, verses 17 through 21, Jesus said, what does he actually say? Three things. Beginning in verse 18, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, here he announces that one of his disciples will betray him. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Now notice their response, verse 19. They all said, it's Judas. No. They began to be sorrowful. And to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. That is one who is participating of this meal, one who is taking the bread, dipping it in that stew, what has been prepared, one who is eating with us, fellowshipping with us, communing with us. It is one of the intimate, one of the inner circle, one of these twelve, one of you who have fellowshiped with me, lived with me, walked with me, seen my miracles, heard my teaching for the past three years. It is one of you. And they're absolutely shocked. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. 
Judas had the highest possible religious privileges. He was an apostle and companion of Christ. He was an eyewitness of our Lord's miracles and a hearer of his sermons. He lived in the society of the eleven apostles, but not one of them seems to have suspected him of hypocrisy. When our Lord said, One of you shall betray me, no one said, Is it Judas? Yet all this time his heart was never changed. Has your heart been changed? It begs the question, doesn't it? Are we playing church? Or do we know a risen Savior? Have our hearts been changed? Are we partakers of the divine nature? Have we been born again by the power of God's Spirit? Have we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of our sin, and placed our hope in Him alone? Secondly, Jesus says that the Old Testament Scriptures actually point to His death. This comes out in verse 21, right at the start. For the Son of Man, that is a reference. We hear him using this time and time again in the book of Mark. For the Son of Man goes. He's speaking of his death, the betrayal which will lead to his crucifixion. He goes as it is written of him. Yes, one of you is going to betray me. Judas is going to betray me. Yes, I'm going to be handed over to the Jewish religious authorities. Yes, they're going to hand me over to Pilate. And yes, Pilate is going to hand me over to be crucified. But I want you to understand this. It is in accordance with the Scriptures. It is in accordance with God's plan. All of these men are handing me over because my Father is handing me over. It is foreordained. It is according to the predetermined plan of God that the Lord Jesus be betrayed, that the Lord Jesus be crucified. You go back into the previous chapter, perhaps you remember this from the previous Sunday. The chief priests and the scribes, they're plotting his arrest. Uh, they, know, they want to do something. They want him out of the way. And so they're scheming how they can get their hands on him, how they can arrest him, and how they can kill him secretly. They don't want to do it during the feast lest it cause an uproar. They are not planning to see him dead during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover. But guess what? God is planning to see him dead through the Feast of Passover because he is the Lamb of God. He is the Passover Lamb who is sacrificed in accordance with the foreordained, predetermined, sovereign will of God. C.H. Spurgeon writes, when properly understood, it is such a matter of unspeakable consolation. God has a plan. It is a matter of rejoicing that God has one great purpose that extends through all ages and embraces all things. Everything falls into its proper place. Why then, Christians, should we murmur at the purposes and the decrees of God? He declares that the Old Testament Scriptures point to his death. The third thing he says here brings us still into verse 21. He proclaims a terrible curse upon the man who betrays him. From the start of the verse, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man 
if he had not been born. And so, yes, this is going to happen in accordance with the preordained, sovereign, predetermined plan of God. And yet Judas is going to do precisely what he wants to do. And God is going to hold Judas accountable. I mean, friend, that is a, that is a shocking statement. Uh, terrible in its magnitude. Hear it again. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. One preacher writes the following. It is better never to live at all than to live without faith and to die without grace. Do you believe that? That is terrifying. It is better never to live at all than to live without faith and to die without grace. What will it be like to fall into the hands of an angry God without being covered by the blood of Jesus? What will it be like to fall into the hands of a God who dwells in unapproachable light, who is holy, 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 who is too perfect to behold iniquity? What will it be like to live a life however I please, following my dreams, my ambitions, and reject this God by rejecting his son and then to face him someday? What does eternity hold for the person who rejects the Son of God, who dares to stand before God outside of the Lord Jesus Christ? That is the first shocking statement. Again, it consists of those three announcements. Jesus announces that one of his disciples will betray him. Jesus announces that the Old Testament scriptures actually point to his death. It's God's plan. And Jesus announces, proclaims a curse upon the man who betrays him. Now we enter the second shocking statement. It begins in verse 22 and wraps up in verse 25. As they were eating, he took bread. And immediately Jesus begins to speak of whom? Himself. This, the disciples, their, their mouths must just have been gaping. The, the, the shock. I can't even imagine it. This is a feast. Passover is a feast which they have been celebrating, that is the Israelites, the Jews have been celebrating for 1,400 years. It is a feast that Yahweh, Jehovah, God himself instituted. It is a feast that, that celebrates. It is in commemoration of that, that great redemptive act known as the Exodus. And this, this, this feast has been celebrated over centuries after, centuries after centuries after centuries. The same words are always spoken. Four cups are always blessed. The four promises of Exodus 6, verses 6 through 7, always quoted. The Psalms from the Hallel, is it Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, always sung. It has been the same tradition, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, generation after generation. How shocking! When all of a sudden the Lord Jesus speaks, and basically he says this, it's all about me. It's all about me. You know, what that, you know what that would be like? I heard a preacher make this comparison one, like, once. It would be like, imagine, let's imagine our, our mind's eye that this is actually a wedding. And I'm officiating a wedding. And uh, the groom, the young man, he comes up and he's standing there with his ushers and everything else. 
And the bride, there she is, she comes in and she walks to the music and joins her, her groom, the bridegroom at the front. And there they stand, and I say, welcome to everyone. Uh, I just want to let you know it's actually my, my birthday today. And I'd like to say a little bit about myself, and then Chris is going to come up uh, so that we can all sing happy birthday to me. That would be unacceptable on so many levels. That's what Jesus is doing. That is exactly what he is doing. This is a feast that has been commemorated for 1,400 years. The traditions, the practices, the rituals are codified. It is the same year after year after year. Here they are gathered. Here they are partaking. And now Jesus utters these tremendous words. It is, in effect, all about me. How? Firstly, by his death. This is his point. By his death, he fulfills the Passover. Friends, this is the last Passover. This is the final Passover. Any Passover that the Jews celebrated after this or celebrated since then, even celebrate today, is absolutely void of meaning. This is it. The feast ends that night. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul makes clear in his first epistle to the Corinthians, he is our Passover, who has been sacrificed, who has been crucified. And so the Lord Jesus is in effect saying, yes, we're partaking of this lamb. Yes, we're hearkening back and we're remembering the exodus. But I want you to understand this. I am the fulfillment of the Passover. That just as that lamb back in the days of Moses, when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, just as that lamb was a male unblemished. You see, this points to me, my perfection, the perfection of my nature. Just as they had to kill and slaughter that lamb, so too I am about to be killed and slaughtered. Just as they had to burn and cook that, 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 that lamb with fire, I am about to suffer unbearable suffering at the hands of my father. Just as they had to eat and consume that lamb, so too those who will be saved must appropriate me by faith. They must become one with me in my death and in my burial and in my resurrection. And just as they had to take the blood and they had to splatter it, apply it to the doorposts and to the lintel of their homes, so too those who are saved are those who are one with me through faith. And just as God passed over those households where the blood had been applied back in the days of the Exodus, sparing the firstborn. So too God now passes over every man, every woman where the blood has been and is applied. Friend, is that you? Do do we we feel the, the, the weight of this? Do we perceive the gravity of it? That God passes over and passes over alone. That is his judgment and his wrath. Passes over only, exclusively, those where the blood of the Lamb is applied. We appropriate the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are one with him positionally, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. As a result, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The wrath of God has passed over 
That's the first point he's making. The second point is this. By his death, Jesus institutes the supper. My 12, this is the last Passover. But it's also the beginning of something new. The first supper. The first Lord's Supper. What we call the Lord's Supper. The first communion service. The first Eucharist service. Don't be afraid of that term Eucharist. It's simply a Greek word which means thanksgiving. Christ himself uses it. This is the first Supper. As the Passover is fulfilled in the death of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the fulfillment of it. He now institutes a new feast, the Lord's Supper, to commemorate his death. And he actually makes three proclamations, three announcements. The first is this, in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it. And gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. That's announcement number one. And so the bread uh, speaks of, points to, represents the body of the Lord Jesus. Jesus breaks the bread. The broken bread speaks of his broken body. The fact that at Calvary's cross, our sin is imputed to him. He bears our sin in his body upon the tree. And the wrath of God falls upon the Lord Jesus Christ. One preacher describes this in wonderful terms. He he writes the following. I read some years ago in National Geographic that after a forest fire in Yellowstone National Park, some forest rangers began to trek up a mountain to survey the damage. One ranger found a bird of which nothing was left but the carbonized, petrified shell covered in ashes, huddled at the base of a tree. Somewhat sickened by this eerie sight, the ranger knocked the bird over with a stick and three tiny chicks scurried out from under the dead mother's wing. When the blaze had arrived, the mother had remained steadfast instead of running. Because she had been willing to die, Those under the cover of her wings lived. And Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets and stone those that sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. This is my body, a body broken. Why? The imputation, the reckoning of our sin to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Father forsaking the Son as he hangs upon Calvary's cross so that we might find refuge where? In the shadow of his wings. Second announcement he makes is this. This is my blood. Verse 23. He took a cup. We have it here before us. He took this cup and when he had given thanks, that's that word Eucharist, He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so just as the bread speaks of the body of the Lord Jesus, the broken bread speaks of his broken body, so too the the, the cup speaks of the blood of the Lord Jesus, his shed blood by which he atones for our sin, turning away the wrath of God satisfying the justice of God and securing the mercy of God on our behalf. 
And then the third announcement he makes, verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What's he doing here? He's pointing ahead. He's pointing to the future. He is emphasizing the fact that, yes, his kingdom is inaugurated, but his kingdom is not yet consummated. He has emphasized the fact that the bread is his body, the cup is his blood, his body is going to be broken, his blood is going to be shed, he is going to experience unspeakable and unimaginable suffering, and yet this suffering will pave the way to glory. These words are for his benefit. As he looks at what will befall him in just a few hours at Calvary's cross, his, his faith is fortified. His hope is fortified as he considers that glory that is coming. This declaration is for his disciples' benefit. He's going to state in a few moments that the, the shepherd is about to be, to be stricken. And when he is, the sheep will scatter. But suffering is the pathway to glory. These words are for our benefit. Here we find ourselves in the tension of living in these two ages. Yes, a kingdom that has been inaugurated, and yet we're awaiting the consummation of the kingdom, the return of the Lord Jesus. And here we struggle, and here we experience affliction, but we have this certainty that an end is coming. And so he adds this great and glorious statement for our benefit to strengthen our faith, strengthen our hope. Truly I say to you, in other words, his suffering is simply a pathway to what is coming. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, interestingly, Mark leaves something out of his account of the Last Supper, the last Passover, the first supper. Uh, Luke includes it. I believe Matthew includes it. It's these words that Jesus utters. Do this in remembrance of me. And with those words, the Lord Jesus, he points to a few things. Firstly, he points to this, that this, this supper is to be done perpetually. That you are to do this continually in remembrance of me. With those words, do this in remembrance of me, he is pointing to the fact that this is a, this is a simple memorial. He has given them but two things. He's given them bread. He has given them a cup. There's nothing fancy about this. There's nothing particularly magnificent about this. You think of the pyramids in Egypt or the Taj Mahal in India. These memorials which are constructed and erected in celebration and memorial of of kings or or in the case of the Taj Mahal, someone's wife. You think of the Washington Monument or the Lincoln Memorial. All of these great elaborate statues and things that, that, that are constructed by man to commemorate, to remember. Lord Jesus gives us nothing like that. He gives us what? The simple. Some bread and a cup. Here's the marvelous thing. We can travel just about anywhere in this world today. We can go to just about any geographical region, and we can worship with people in just about any language, and we will find precisely what? The same glorious memorial. Bread. Broken bread pointing to his broken body. Blood as symbolized in the cup, pointing to and speaking of what? The new covenant which he ratified and established by his death. And it's a visual thing, isn't it? That as we have bread and we have the cup before us this day, these are visual reminders. You think of of, uh, missionaries. Uh, Most missionaries, before they head overseas to their place of service, 
Uh, they might produce a prayer card, right? And they'll put their photograph on there of the family and their names underneath and contact addresses. And uh, when they speak at a church, they'll hand out those prayer cards and we'll collect them in the cover of our Bible or use them as bookmarks or put them up on the refrigerator at home or something like that. Those prayer cards, they are what? Visual reminders. They're not the real, real thing. These are visual reminders, symbols given to us, a wonderful memorial pointing us back, hearkening us back to that sacrifice which has once for all been offered for us. And as we partake, we celebrate the past. We give thanks for that sacrifice offered once for all. As we partake, we enjoy the present. As we eat and drink, God renews our faith in the fact that we need Jesus' body and blood to save us as much as we need food and drink to sustain us. And we lift up our hearts to commune with Jesus as symbolized in the bread and wine. Not only do we celebrate the past, not only do we enjoy the present, but we anticipate the future. Do this in remembrance of me. We will only do so until he comes back. Those prayer cards. They only serve a purpose. When those missionaries come back, the prayer cards become insignificant, inconsequential. So too, we partake of this in celebration of the past with great joy in the present in great anticipation of what lies ahead in the future. And so with that said, let's bow our heads, close our eyes, lift up our hearts to God and seek his blessing upon this meal, this feast, as we dedicate the emblems to him.